Hello and welcome to the CrocCast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the Croc Institute for International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame. I'm Marty Kennedy, a 2022 graduate of the undergraduate program in Peace Studies. And in today's episode, we'll be taking a look at the history and present state of both activism and scholarship for the inclusion of LGBTQ plus persons on the University of Notre Dame's campus. I'm joined for this conversation by three fellow alumni of the Peace Studies program. Alex Kosha is a 2014 Notre Dame Peace Studies graduate who currently serves as a senior policy analyst at the Center for the Study of Social Policy in DC. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for having me, Mark. Connor Hayes is a 2016 Notre Dame Peace Studies graduate who currently works as a legal fellow with the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Nice to see you, Connor. Good to be here. And Flora Tang is currently a PhD student in Peace Studies and Theology at Notre Dame and also received her bachelor's degree from Notre Dame in 2018. Nice to see you, Flora. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So before we get into our conversation, I kind of want to give a framing of kind of why I'm the host and why we're doing this. My undergraduate research at Notre Dame mainly focused on two areas. First, researching the history of LGBTQ plus activism at the University of Notre Dame, particularly in the 20th century. And second, researching how the institutional culture of Notre Dame and other universities shape that university's public discourse on LGBTQ rights. I want to stress the importance of LGBTQ activism and visibility on Notre Dame's campus. While data has shown that LGBTQ activism occurs at religious universities at lower quantities than non-religious universities, this does not mean no activism occurred. In fact, students have been fighting for LGBTQ rights for decades at the University of Notre Dame, a fight that still continues to this day. However, where Notre Dame lacks is its timeline and progress on LGBTQ rights. As of today, Notre Dame's non-discrimination clause still does not include sexual orientation or gender identity. Other top Catholic universities, such as Georgetown, Boston College, and Villanova, all have sexual orientation and gender identity in their non-discrimination clause. And when looking at LGBTQ student groups, timeline is very important here. Columbia University had the first university-approved gay student group in the United States in 1967. Other top schools, such as Ohio State, North Carolina, and Berkeley, had a university-approved student group in the early 1970s. However, it was not until 1996 that Notre Dame had some semblance of an approved gay-lesbian student group. But I want to be clear that this was not an actual university-approved student group like these other schools had. This group was not seen as a student organization, but rather as a university-sponsored group, and therefore faced more severe restrictions and limitations on their autonomy compared to approved student groups, such as a requirement to have an advisor at all meetings and an inability to request funds, advertisements, or university facilities on their own as the university-appointed advisor had to request such resources. But jumping to 2013, PRISM ND was founded as the truly first official student organization dedicated to serving the LGBTQ and ally community on campus at Notre Dame, 46 years after the first university-approved gay student group in the nation at Columbia. I personally love PRISM ND. I think it's a fantastic organization. And I wanna start by asking Connor and Alex a little bit about it. So Connor and Alex, you were both active in the movements that led to the foundation of PRISM ND on campus. Alex, I wonder if you could start by telling us a bit about the formation of the Four to Five movement and how that came to be. So the Four to Five movement was a campaign organized by the Progressive Student Alliance, which was and is a recognized club on campus originally as a as kind of a hub for labor rights and a living wage campaign. But it was also the hub for 
LGBTQ activism because the unofficial Gay Straight Alliance organization was just that. It was unofficial. It was not recognized by the university at the time. And so there was a feeling amongst sort of the members of Progressive Student Alliance that there needed to be a concerted campaign to raise awareness about the uh, lack of recognition for the Gay Straight Alliance. Now, this built on years and years, as you mentioned, of previous student activism. And I think one of the things that folks in PSA and the Fortified Movement intentionally did was learn learn our history. And so we knew that there had been various applications for the Gay Straight Alliance throughout the last few decades. And we also knew that the university had denied that application for varying reasons and changing reasons over time. And so it was very important that we knew what those reasons were so that we could adequately address them. But we knew we wanted to develop some sort of campaign, and I think we were trying to figure out the best approach for it, the best type of framing for it. And really, we had a spark when Progressive Student Alliance invited Brian Sims, who was the first openly gay college football captain. And he is now an elected official in Pennsylvania. Before that, he was a lawyer. And he spoke to us and he cited a Pew Research statistic, which was that four out of five 18 to 30-year-olds who are college-educated between the ages of 18 and 30 in the U.S. right now are supportive of the general package of gay civil rights. And he said that same group, 80% majority, when polled, only think that they are a 33%. So they only think that one-third of their peers agree with them. And we heard that. We thought that is, we don't know the numbers on campus, but that is the dynamic. We know that being an ally is not something that was talked about on campus. We know that LGBTQ support was not something that was talked about on campus. There was a silence around it, but we knew from talking to friends and just general interactions that there was that majority. And so partly the Fortify movement started with a goal of ally. We wanted to raise the issue to the forefront to make it clear that allies should be vocal, allies should be unapologetic, and allies should be supportive. But that wasn't all. We wanted to raise structural awareness as well. And those were mostly around two dominant issues that you talked about. One was the lack of official recognition of the Gay Straight Alliance student organization and the lack of sexual orientation and gender identity in the non-discrimination policy. And so we focused on those as our main policy asks and began to build a, a coalition. It started with students and amongst student groups, but it extended to faculty, to departments on campus, to alumni. We gained external support from other Catholic colleges and universities. Loyola University of Chicago passed resolutions in support of our work and sort of showed that Catholic universities can support their LGBTQ students, faculty, and staff through inclusive non-discrimination policies and the recognition of, of affiliation groups. And so building that coalition, it was somewhat intentional, but it was also just trying a lot of new things and trying to get people on board to show that this was something that was important for the university. And I could talk plenty about, uh, about kind of the ins and outs of that, but I think, you know, one of the big takeaways was really, we wanted to create this umbrella campaign, the Fortify Movement, but we wanted people to have a lot of freedom and autonomy in how they approached it for themselves. And so what was great about that is that you could have individuals or dorms or other clubs have some sort of awareness activity or put up posters or start you know, a video campaign, doing it under the umbrella of the four to five movement. And it made it clear how broad that this coalition was. We even got allies in 
the athletics department and among sports teams to do poster campaigns for us to talk about the importance of being an ally. And it was an I am an athlete, I am an ally campaign. So it was a very broad-based coalition, but we also had important relationships with administrators to make sure that we could actually see some of the change that we wanted to beyond just the immediate campus environment, but with respect to campus policy as well. And so student leaders within Progressive Student Alliance and the Fortify Movement met regularly with administrators and, and administrators from student affairs, first to really make clear what the issues were. I mean, students know the student environment best, and I think a lot gets lost in communication when you get to the administrative level. And so part of it was just making that clear. But then also it was making clear that we wanted to be partners in developing a solution that would actually meet the needs of students. And that ultimately is that plus a lot of external pressure ultimately got us to the point where we were able to gain recognition for the Gay-Straight Alliance, which then became known as, as Prism ND. Thank you. I think that's a really important thing to know, right? Is that activism at Notre Dame on other campuses in general, it takes time, it takes innovation to try different tactics, to try different strategies, to really truly meet students' needs. And like I said, this happens throughout times. There's failures, like you've mentioned, with Notre Dame denying recognition to an LGBTQ student group, but there's also successes, like when PRISM ND was founded. So following up on that, Connor, could you share a bit more about the movement that grew out of this, that led to the formation of PRISM ND, an organization where you served as one of the founding co-presidents? So I think as Alex kind of alluded to there at the end, PRISM very much came out of four to five and the pressure that it was putting on the administration and conversations that were happening on campus about, well, you know, what does it look like to provide for um, LGBT students? So at the time that four to five was happening, there was kind of little tiny tidbits of support that the university was throwing to the LGBT community, right? There was a there was a group called the Core Council that was kind of an advisory group to student affairs. During four to five, they, you know, the university would kind of sometimes fall back, I think, on, well, we're already providing this core council, you know, do you really need a student organization? And eventually, I think, you know, the students involved in four to five, um, which I kind of came in at the very end of it, pushed the university so much that they finally realized, you know what, between this pressure we're getting on campus and the benchmarking that we're doing with our peer universities, you know, we're going to need to actually found one of these, one of these student groups, because otherwise we're not going to get the end of it from these students. Um, you know, these pesky students like Alex um, and Lauren Morisot, who was involved in four to five and all of us who were just basically raising hell, <laughs> you know, until we were going to get an officially approved student group. So PRISM ND was announced, the kind of formation of PRISM ND was announced actually the fall of my first year at Notre Dame. So I came in very early on and you know, I think me and a few other people who were first years at the time stepped up and said, you know, we're happy to step in and lead this and take the reins on this because, you know, I think our huge principle, whether you're in social movements or you're in an organization like PRISM, where you're a formal organization, but you're still kind of pushing the campus environment, is having that sort of longevity. So I think someone like Alex could have easily stepped in and being student body president made that maybe a little difficult, but you know, someone like Alex could have stepped in to lead it, but he had less time left at Notre Dame. So he could have, you know, taken on a leadership role in prison, but then graduated and, you know, didn't really have the time to see it through and make sure that the university actually protected the interests of LGBT students and kept PRISM as an active organization. Because there was a very real fear, I think, at this time that 
maybe they were just throwing this bone to us and then prison was just going to die a slow, painful death. We have the benefit now of looking back some years later and saying, hey, thank God, you know, it actually survived. We did it. But, but at the time, I think that was a very real fear. So yeah, uh, me and a few other students kind of stepped up and were, and were, you know, took over leadership of PRISM. It was officially launched in the fall of my sophomore year. So this would have been the fall of 2013. And from there, we kind of picked up, honestly, where four to five left off. Like I mentioned, it was a more formal organization, but we cared very much about the same sorts of advocacy efforts on campus. You know, we cared very much about making sure that we were visible on campus. You know, four to five had posters that they and little signs they would put up on the quads outside the dining halls. Prism stepped in and we started doing, you know, rainbow uh, doors for National Coming Out Day, which I still very clearly remember Muffet McGraw going through the door and trying to drag uh, Monk Malloy through the door with her. Um, And he was like terrified. He was very supportive, to be clear, but he was like, I don't, oh my goodness, what is this thing? Who's going to take my picture? And Muffet was just proudly marching on through and was just saying, this is great. This is amazing. So it was stuff like that that was where we really took up the mantle of four to five. And it was just trying to make sure that we were known and visible. Something that PRISM, I think, still kind of has a bit now is that its structure was not a typical student group necessarily. So PRISM's founding was, you know, done with, I think, a bit of trepidation by the university. And they set it up more as a more formal student organization that they had a little bit more oversight over. You know, it was housed within student affairs, had very formal advisor that things had to go through. And, you know, as a result, it was that first year and really the first three years was just a lot of boundary pushing and, you know, trying to figure out some wiggle room um, and how we could get our message out there, how we could push back, you know, against student organizations that were bringing anti-LGBT speakers onto campus, you know, without losing our funding, without losing that formal support that the university had very tentatively offered. And then on top of that, though, it was also just a leadership challenge, too, because in addition to being a very fun, nimble, queer and trans focused student group, we're trying to do fun things like having these coming out day closets and throwing, you know, events and and having these really visible rainbows all over campus of rainbow chalking and things like that. You also had to lead the organization and in the very classic Notre Dame way, run a concession stand to raise money on a football Saturday. So it was kind of a fun lesson, I think, for me, and that sometimes the activism is extremely fun, but you kind of also have to step back and think about, you know, what are the real challenges of leadership? And those were, you know, they were fun challenges, but it was also very difficult, I think, at times in those, in those early years to kind of set up that infrastructure so that the organization could actually last and survive and thrive. No, yeah, I, I think it's a very difficult challenge, especially on a college campus to maintain longevity, especially because right on top of building a group, you're also only there for four years. So you really are trying to build that infrastructure, fight for change, make sure change is being maintained and continued and expanded upon, all while knowing that you know you will be leaving this university at a certain time. It's a really unique challenge to collegiate activism, I feel which can really birth some kind of quick movements and quick action, which I really think is, you know, a really great thing. But I want to talk, Alex and Connor, I wonder if you could reflect on how it felt to be involved in this activism that involved high-level leaders at the university. Alex, I think you mentioned working with high-level leaders a little earlier. Kind of where did you find sources of support and what did you learn from the process of advocating for this new group and for different policies? Anyone can take it. I can jump in since I was I was just talking. But I think 
one of the biggest lessons that I took was that you'll often find very unexpected allies in unexpected places. I think within the context of a Catholic university, working on LGBT issues is it unfortunately was, and I think still is to some extent, a difficult thing for administrators because they're navigating, I think, a very real desire to care for students with a very real fear of alumni donors who are going to pull their fundraising and pull their donations and phone up the president and say, what the heck is going on at this university? And I think that was a constant battle. And there were some administrators who I think were both antagonistic to LGBT concerns and used the alumni donor piece as kind of a a shield so they didn't have to voice their own uh, personal bigotry. But then I also think there were a lot of people who were very supportive, but were very scared of how to take a, a national Catholic university that gets a lot of attention in the right direction on LGBT issues. And I think a lot of those leaders sometimes would help us in very unique, very unexpected ways, but they were very quiet about it. And even now I'm still hesitant to even name them because I don't want to jeopardize, you know, their role in Catholic higher education or just American Catholicism generally. But I think it it was, it was a big lesson for me. I think, you know, I was, I was very fiery when I got to Notre Dame. I mean, I grew up in a very um, supportive family, you know, as a queer person and, I just, and in a very progressive area when it comes to queer and trans issues. So when I got to Notre Dame, I think I was just banging my head against, you know, how can these people possibly not support queer and trans kids and students? And I think I wanted to fight more. And I think at times fighting was necessary and advocating really loudly and aggressively was necessary. But I also learned that there are times to kind of really carefully, you know, work with these administrators who might be supportive, but just don't feel comfortable because they might lose their job if they're maybe a little too openly supportive. And it, I took heart, you know, over the course of my four years in Notre Dame from the fact that there were people who, even if they weren't publicly coming out and signing letters to the observer, you know, about LGBT issues or making super public statements about LGBT issues. I knew that behind the scenes, they were working to make sure that queer and trans kids got the mental health services and the, the just student services generally that they needed. That's really well said. I, you know, I think the, the support and insight and strategic thinking that we got from university leadership in different capacities, whether it was within the dome or whether it was across campus at various levels of of faculty and staff was just absolutely invaluable. And I think part of, I think what I learned from that was just the importance of having the institutional knowledge and memory because we were able to perhaps skip reinventing the wheel for a few moments or a few months that allowed us to to get started quickly because as you said marty one of the you know just inherent disadvantages of a student activist is that they're only there for four years and if they can actually have four years of work that's really lucky because it takes time to enter the environment and ultimately the process of exiting as well so i certainly learned that 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 institutional knowledge and support is is absolutely invaluable we also you know found support from each other. You know, it, it was not a, I think Connor alluded to it, it was very tense throughout the four to five movement um, for, at, at a student level. You know, the possibility of burnout and anger was incredibly real and at times was expressed sort of very vocally, but then we tried to channel that into to sort of productive organizing actions. One example is when uh, the university made its announcement after months of sort of campaigning and the university announced that it would not be 
amending the non-discrimination clause and that it would punt the decision on the Gay-Straight Alliance until the following fall, there was an organized rally at Stonehenge in which people just got up and started telling their stories. Some of them very personal stories about coming out and some of them reactions to the university announcement and how it made them feel and whether or not it made them feel valued on campus. And, and that type of action then was, you know, front page of the Observer the next day and, and I think was a very real response to, to the university making that statement. And so we got support from each other. There was absolutely a community involved and we had to. Otherwise, you know, I, I think really burnout was, was quite real. The other thing, the only other thing I would mention that Connor touched on is, is just having the faculty involved really, really helped our cause. One, because it made very clear how many allies there were. Once you got to know one, you started to get to know many. And then at a personal level, you could sort of direct students to support a faculty. But at a campaign level, it meant that faculty were able to have some conversations that we weren't um, or we didn't have access to. And so we knew that there were people in conversations across the university at all sorts of levels having pushing for these changes um, to support LGBTQ students on campus. So, so that faculty support was, was absolutely incredible. I think something to build on Alex's just last point too about the faculty too, is that as a student, I think you can often have a very limited worldview and think that everything, the only thing that matters is what matters to students and student concerns. But, you know, I think in talking to these supportive faculty, it was often a reminder that the faculty were advocating for their own needs too you know, within this hierarchy at the university, whether it was for better pay or better treatment or, you know, grad students advocating for better housing or things like that. So, you know, I think something that I took away from a lot of my conversations with faculty, in addition to just finding those levels of support and unexpected places of support, was relying on a lot of faculty that I had, including peace studies faculty, you know, who would walk me through how to think through some of these tough conversations, you know, in negotiating with the university hierarchy and things like that in a way that at 19, I thought I had all the answers and, you know, turns out I did not, but they, you know, they were teachers. So they understood the need to like, not in a condescending way, teach me how to actually, you know, advocate and work in these situations, but, you know, really far beyond what goes on in the classroom, teach me how to you know, lead this organization and work on this movement on campus and set it up for success. And really quickly, just to kind of talk to students, maybe come to Notre Dame or there already, for students today, we may think that LGBTQ student support exists in certain departments, in the peace studies department, in the sociology department, the political science department. What I'm trying to kind of ask is, did you find maybe people in engineering who were supportive or in the science wing that were supportive or in other um, areas just to give the message that there are many allies out there that students can look for in terms of faculty, if that makes more sense. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we, we had a sort of a network of, of faculty allies, and, and I can say without a doubt that it was very diverse when it comes to the subject matter, <laughs> uh, the departments represented, and certainly the, the colleges and schools. And again, that goes to the fact that we were confident that faculty across the board were having these conversations that we that students might not be a part of, um, but were nonetheless, as Connor rightfully said, also pushing for their meeting their needs as, as uh, allies and as LGBTQ faculty too. I think this also gets a little bit into maybe Flora, what you're going to talk about too, but I think 
in addition to just subject matter diversity in terms of, oh yeah, there's allies in the engineering and science department. I mean, I also had a number of theology professors who I think were very helpful advisors to me and were very, very supportive, you know, including several priests, which I think, you know, I stayed very religious throughout my time at Notre Dame and I still am. Um, and I think within, you know, some of my queer friends at Notre Dame, sometimes they were surprised that there were, ad, you know, supporters within like the theology department or, you know, those sorts of places. And there very much were, which, you know, gave me a lot of hope just during my time there. Yes. And, and this is a perfect transition because Flora, I kind of want to shift over you a little bit because in your work as a Catholic theology and also a peace study scholar, you're kind of thinking about developing a more inclusive theological tradition. So kind of how do you understand Catholicism or Catholic theology's role in shaping these conversations on LGBTQ rights? Yeah, um, thank you, Marty. That's a really great question. And I think like within the context of like not only Notre Dame, but also Catholic circles, I think Catholic teaching or whether we call it theology or dogma can often be used as a sort of shield, like Connor had said, or as a sort of rhetoric to almost preclude genuine conversation and a genuine yeah, discussion of people's needs and wants and, and where we stand. Um, I think something that's frustrating um, about conversations that are always framed within the setting of Catholicism, such as here in Notre Dame, is that like a lot of times, you know, I've been here as an undergrad, I think here as a grad student, the same conversation is held over and over again, um, whether we see it in observer viewpoint debates or public facing university statements, right? We see the more anti-LGBTQ side, say, church teaching, the catechism, or they use flowery theological language to almost conceal their homophobia, or by saying, you know, we're not homophobic, we just don't stand for gay acts, it's not the people, it's the acts. Or we welcome gay students so long as they embrace, quote, chastity and friendship, which is per the official teachings of the church, right? So those languages can be really flowery and really confusing and just really... Um, sort of confounding and precluding of genuine discussion activism. Whereas like on the pro-LGBTQ side, um, we see Catholic social teaching being cited or respect for all persons or Pope Francis is famous, who am I to judge? We're all sinners and all of that. And I think some of this rhetoric is good, but I think the problem with, I think having a limited view of how Catholic theology can be used in this, these discussions is that we just often get stuck in these shallow debates in our own campus, be like, we're gonna pull from these passages of church teaching and whereas the other people are gonna pull from those passages. Um, and I think that masks the actual needs of LGBTQ students beyond just respect and compassion. Like it masks our, a lot of our physical needs, a lot of our emotional and social needs, um, our medical needs, access to SCI testing or access to gender neutral bathrooms or having a mechanism for their preferred names and pronouns to be displayed and recognized. Yeah, allowing trans students more flexible housing options, as well as the employment non-discrimination clause, as well as many other just concrete material issues. So I think one challenge of Catholic theology and using theological language on a Catholic campus is to not hide behind theology to justify inaction or to use theology as an excuse to say, oh, we respect all people. Um, that's really easy to say and call it a day and not moving on further to see how we can address people's specific needs besides just their very generic need for respect and for recognition. And I think as a theology student, yeah, there's two types of theology, right? There's theologies that 
tend to debate LGBTQ rights and debate LGBTQ existence. And I tend to stay away from that because that could be really exhausting to constantly have to debate and justify my own existence, my own lifestyle, my own identities um, using theological arguments when my straight classmates don't have to do that. And But on the other side, where what I'm more interested in are theologies that um, say listen to and arise from the joys, the sorrows, the experiences, the needs of queer people and using those experiences as a source of both spirituality and theology. And I think this university as a Catholic school could do a lot better in providing those spaces for people, um, knowing that queer students have their own particular spiritual journeys, struggles, as well as yeah, just spiritual experiences and just thinking about how we can cater to those experiences rather than limiting our conversation on Catholic theology or doctrine and queerness to just mere debates on, oh, can I be gay and Catholic? Or how can I be gay and Catholic? Or, you know, is being gay okay? And I think those questions are important, but just that's like the very foundational step. And we need a lot more than that. I think that's really important, right? I think on a personal level, I've always kind of seen coming to Notre Dame as a Catholic, seen Catholicism as a hindrance to that, as a hindrance to progress on LGBTQ rights. But to hear you kind of say that it can be used to fight for LGBTQ rights, but also exist beyond this vacuum of, is it okay to be gay and Catholic? Is it not okay to be gay and Catholic? Which I think is really, you know, I said it in a less profound way than you just said, but really, really important to me at least. And you kind of touched upon this a little bit, but how are you carving out a different space for yourself within Catholic theological studies and scholarship with your work? I would say, first of all, it's not, it's definitely not easy. Um, I'm one of the only openly gay theology PhD students in the department and probably one of the few openly gay, like, people who are currently TAing and will be teaching one day um, in the department. And that's really hard because sometimes in classrooms, we do get to questions of debating whether I should be there or not, or not me personally, but debating, you know, the rights of queer people and then having a classmate slam the catechism that they pulled open on their phone um, as a defense um, for the homophobia. So that's really hard. Um, I would say, like Connor said earlier, a lot of my theology professors um, are really supportive people. Um, for any current undergrad students who are listening to this podcast, like some of your theology professors or priests even are really great resources for pastoral um, and affirming and welcoming and um, those are good people to talk to. But I think now that I'm moving on to the more teaching side of I would say like having taught and TA'd um, classes, um, the students that I teach and interact with, um, many of them know me as, you know, one of the only queer TAs in theology. Um, so that many of them are queer and they approach me and they want to talk to me and they're, some of them are confident in who they are, others are still figuring who they are. Um, and a lot of them talk to me about how to um, think theologically about their um, sexual orientations or how to think theologically about feminism um, or a bunch of other issues. Um, and that's something that is giving me a lot of hope. And I think those are some of my own spaces of being a researcher and a teacher in theology. And I would share with them, you know, queer theology readings and resources. And yeah, and I think at the end of the day, despite the many challenges, I think of myself as like, I, I research and I write theology for these students, the first years and sophomores who are, uh, you know, taking their theology requirement classes, um, but also realizing that like, yeah, like they are gay and there is, you know, something in these classes that are still 
for them, despite the grand narrative that like there is nothing for them. Thank you for that. I think that's fascinating. And so I kind of want to look a little broader now. For each one of you, as we all know, there's a lot happening right now nationally in the United States. In Florida, they have passed a Don't Say Gay bill, which bans instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in primary schools. There's been anti-trans legislation in Texas and all around the country in many states. And people are looking toward the Supreme Court right now and fear that they may take action to roll back rights for LGBTQ persons. So kind of what do you make of all of this and what types of activism and legislation are needed at this moment at the national level? I think one thing I would say is you rightly listed some of the truly horrific legislation that's coming out of the state level. And in addition to that, you know, there are limited federal level protections to that prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity and expression. And that's in employment and housing, education, healthcare, and other settings. And so certainly one of the things that needs to happen is a robust federal response, including passing the Equality Act. But there are networks of, uh, of litigators, there are networks of service providers, uh, there are networks of advocacy organizations who are doing a lot to combat some of these, these state-level efforts. Um, and I think one of the things that has happened but needs to be uh, continually re-emphasized is how these are all connected. You know, these aren't isolated uh, initiatives where one state got an interesting idea, what they think is an interesting idea, and they're trying to pass it along. No, it, it's a coordinated effort, um, uh, whether it's the, the Texas criminalization of gender-affirming care and not only criminalization, but the family separation that would come with it to efforts in the classroom to uh, to ensure that queer and trans students are not welcome. It's a, a model that's being followed. Um, it's a coordinated effort and uh, unfortunately will require a, a coordinated effort to to oppose and, uh, and eliminate. I think to expand on what Alex just said, which I 100% agree with, um, I think there's also a need at this point for the queer movement um, in general to think about you know, what it means to broaden the movement's power beyond kind of litigation as the constant strategy to protect queer rights. You know, I think for anyone who's come of age relatively recently, and by that I mean the past like 20, 30 years, you know, maybe since Lawrence v. Texas, you know, which was the 2003 Supreme Court ruling that struck down sodomy laws, you know, criminalizing gay sex. You know, I think there was this popular notion that the Supreme Court would protect us. And I think if you look at the broader history of the Supreme Court, it was never meant to protect. You know, I think its its role has always been, you know, protecting the institutions of power, you know, and when it deigns to go along with whatever's going on in popular movements, you know, great. But I think there's been a lot of focus recently, you know, on, you know, litigation as the strategy to protect queer people and trans people. You know, like when you look back at when Prop 8 was passed in California, you know, the response was, well, we'll see you in court. You know, that's not really a sustainable solution anymore. You know, when we look at the fact that the Supreme Court, the current Supreme Court will throw out any precedent that it just so happens to not like and has no qualms throwing out doctrines of law that are pretty well settled. You know, I think we really need to think about what it means to build power in our communities to fight back against these laws at a local level. Because as Alex said, I mean, this is a concerted effort on a local level and they know that there are no federal protections, you know, that will protect against this. And I don't think this is going away either. You know, unfortunately, I mean, there's a 
some would call it actual fascism. I would say there's a fascist impulse behind it, but to find a wedge issue, that's a community that people, that a community that is not popular, you know, nationwide, which is trans folks, you know, unfortunately, and use that as the wedge issue to, you know, get votes and build power. And they're going to keep doing that, you know, as long as that's a currency of power that they can engage in. So these bills are, you know, the bills du jour at the moment, and they're going to keep being bills for the next couple of years, if not longer. So I think, you know, we just, we really need to think broadly about what it means to invest in organizers. You know, I think that was what peace studies kind of provoked in me as an undergrad was, you know, a respect for movements as a way to create change. So I think, you know, I, as a lawyer at the ACLU, you know, it might sound a little bit counterintuitive for me to say, like, stop asking for lawyers to fix this, you know, <laughs> go organize. But I do think that's, for me, that's the lesson I've learned, you know, in, in being in law school recently and being a young lawyer fighting civil rights work. The courts serve a really important role in protecting certain things. You know, it's like there still are spaces for people to use the courts to protect them. But I think on a broader level, we really need to think concretely as a queer community, you know, and for the trans community about what it means to, to build power to protect ourselves because the institutions in power will not do it for us. Yeah, I think adding on to all of that, um, that was really great, Connor um, and Alex. And I think like more broadly speaking, like all of us also need to just recognize that like queer and trans issues are not just like quote unquote fluffy issues about, you know, who is celebrated, like, oh, your pronouns were not respected, you know, sucks for you, nothing actually changes, which is that's not true. I think like just recognizing and listening to black and brown poor queer activists, especially, and you know, knowing that like queer issues include housing justice and the laws that are being passed impacts how queer people will be receiving healthcare or whether or not they will be denied healthcare. And there's just economic justice issues, labor justice issues, and reproductive justice issues. All of that is all just very concrete issues that are tied into all these waves of anti-LGBTQ laws that are currently being passed and recognizing, yeah, all of that is part of something systemic as well as something that like will actually manifest um, in materially in queer people's lives as well as the lives of many others. And I think turning towards like peace studies and the classroom angle, one thing that has been really important in the classrooms I've been in is especially for undergraduate, is just recognizing and naming these acts as acts of structural and symbolic violence. In all of our introduction to peace studies classes, we learn about structural violence. And I think it is also time to start naming these issues that are happening within the United States, naming white supremacy or Christian nationalism as forms of structural violence that are ongoing in this country. But also like reminding ourselves that, um, for example, like I'm not American. So yeah, I... I'm from China. And I think part of me always remembers that, you know, LGBTQ issues are global human rights issues, um, that as much as we're focusing on these issues here in the U.S., that it is not just a white American issue, right? When we can keep thinking about the continued struggles for marriage equality in Taiwan, for example, or the many LGBTQ church affirming church movements in Kenya, um, as well as on the flip side, just many acts and legislations of anti-LGBTQ violence um, that are happening globally um, and just recognizing that like for us, these are as important as dealing with the many anti-LGBTQ laws that are here in the U.S. as well. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you all three for your comments. I think you kind of really nailed it. You have seen the peace studies terminology. There's so much structural violence. There's so much cultural violence and still there's so much direct violence. I right? think it's important. I'm quoting the Human Rights Campaign's website 
right now that sadly 2022 has already seen at least 19 transgender people fatally shot or killed by other violent means. We say at least because too often these stories go unreported or misreported. In previous years, the majority of these people were Black and Latinx transgender women. So we're bringing in race, class, gender, sexuality into this struggle and discussions and activism around this into this fight. But transitioning back to Notre Dame and discussions of Notre Dame's campus, I want to invite you to take a look at Notre Dame at the current and looking into the future. What are your hopes for our shared alma mater? What is still needed at Notre Dame? Well, to relate Notre Dame to this bigger conversation that, that, we, that we just had, you know, I think my hope for Notre Dame is that it would be a place and that others like it would follow suit as being places where their support for queer, trans students, faculty, and staff uh, is absolutely unapologetic and unwavering because I think as we have seen, anything less than that creates um, a space of ambiguity where the people who are introducing the type of legislation that we just talked about that is deadly, that is harmful, it's where they can be emboldened. And so I really do think that Notre Dame will need to be a place that is, that is unapologetically supportive of, of its queer and trans family members. First of all, 100% agree with what Alex just said. I think something that I tell people now when they see, yo, you're an ACLU lawyer, you're a queer man, like you went to Notre Dame, like how did, how did that happen? You know, and the thing I often tell people is like, look, you know, a lot of my life now is rooted in my time at Notre Dame because it is a values-driven institution. And to Alex's point, I mean, the moment that it stops standing up for those values, you know, of compassion and pastoral care, is the moment that I, my heart breaks. So, you know, I hope it continues doing, I hope that it goes in a direction where it does, you know, stand up for the rights of those who are getting attacked. And I don't just mean in the queer and trans folks, you know, I think there are a lot of communities in the U.S. that are under attack in in the new era that we live in of, as Flora named, you know, white supremacy, Christian nationalism, increasingly having a national stage. So I hope that Notre Dame, you know, stands up for its values in protecting all communities in that way. And on also just to bring it down to a really microscopic level. You know, I think there's a lot of things that Notre Dame can do at its disposal to really tangibly change the life of queer and trans students, you know, on campus, whether it's continuing to expand resources and mental health offerings with hopefully a specific bent, you know, for queer and trans issues, because with all of these bills, there's the legal implications, but there's also the really deeply felt trauma. And as we talked about structural violence and things like that felt, you know, by people and, and, all the mental health manifestations of that. You know, I hope that the university eventually has the courage to start breaking up the uh, single sex dorm setup. You know, I think that I identify as a cisgender person, but as a queer person, I felt really, really unsafe, you know, in my dorm the entire time I was at Notre Dame. And that doesn't even begin to get into the issues that trans folks or non-binary folks who don't fit easily into the single sex dorm setup, you know, can face. So I hope that Notre Dame not that it blows up the entire system, although I'm sure there are some people who would like that, but, you know, create some more creative offerings for students to, to have housing where they feel safe and they can actually pursue an education without thinking about, do I feel safe when I go home at night to my dorm? And finally, I hope that Notre Dame continues its recent efforts to support queer and trans alumni. You know, that was a battle. We haven't even talked about that, but that was a battle that has gone on for decades. And the fact that they've recently announced an official group is huge. So I hope that they do what they did with PRISM and keep supporting that effort for the long haul. 
That was beautifully said. I have a lot of hopes. I think on a more like abstract level, I hope that the identities and relationships of every student will never need to be a topic of debate um, or questioning. I hope that celibacy and friendship is not the only recommended language that the official university letter to gay students and their allies use. I hope that queer relationships are honored and loved on this campus, that queer couples um, are able to hold hands and be celebrated and hopefully one day get married on this campus. And I think on a more concrete level, I know that a lot of university events are geared towards allies. And just like how a lot of DEI events and trainings are fundamentally geared toward white people so that they don't think say things that are offensive, right? I hope that there are more material and and other resources devoted to supporting queer students themselves. And on a more intersectional level in those queer spaces, recognizing that, you know, not every not every queer student is maybe cisgender or white or American. And recognizing that LGBTQ is not a synonym for cisgendered gay men. So making sure that people who don't fit those labels fit into those spaces and not be questioned, oh, are you queer? Are, what are you doing here? That's something that I've definitely faced as an international student, as a woman. And I think update that non-discrimination clause. It is time to do that. It is you should have done it yesterday. I think without that, I um I still feel fearful sometimes as someone who is officially on the school's payroll as a PhD student. Like ultimately, like me getting to stay here is, you know, not something that's legally protected. So I hope that, that will change one day. Yes. Thank you all for that. Those important things, I think. This is a really important conversation, you know, and for all Notre Dame students, keep fighting for peace, keep fighting for justice. And I want to thank you for listening to this important episode of Crowdcast today. Take care and have a great day, everyone. You've been listening to the Crowdcast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the Crowdcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.